Good morning, friends. Good to see you today. That is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, this the, the love of Jesus for his disciples and his uh, patient restoration with them is, is just so good to read about. All of us in this room struggle with sin, just like the disciples did here that we just read about. And then there are times when our struggles become so intense and so discouraging, we wonder why Jesus would still love us. I don't know if you've been there or not, but many that, that sin wonder if he will even take us back because of the heinousness of our sins against him. Even if we're completely sorry and wish that we had never done what we did, well, we have that, that question in our mind. I think at times. If that is you and you've experienced that or if you know someone who's going through things like that, I think our text today will reassure all faint hearts that Jesus remains committed to us his children and that he will come after us and lovingly draw us back to himself no matter what the sin was that sent us away. And so I'd like to, I would like to begin by reading a, an Old Testament verse from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, to begin our conversation together about our wonderful, patient, restoring Lord. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In this verse, which applies to Jesus Christ, we see four things that I want to point out to you. First is this, the Lord of hosts commands the sword. The Lord of hosts said, awake, O sword. And so God is commanding the sword to strike the shepherd. Here we see God commanding the death of his own son. It says, the man that stands next to me, or in the King James, my fellow, it says. This is a reference to the second person of the Godhead, that person of the Godhead who became man in order to enter our world and live amongst us and die for our sins. That one is the one against whom the Lord awakes his sword. So God calls the sword into action. He commands it to awake and this is, of course, the sword of God's justice. Justice against our sin, not his, ours. It was called to fulfill its purpose, that is the sword, to bring judgment by taking the royal life blood of the king of kings and lord of lords. Secondly, I want you to see that the Lord of hosts commands his sword against my shepherd. It doesn't just command the sword, he commands it against a particular fellow the man who stands next to me, one of the three co-equal Godheads. The shepherd is absolutely Jesus Christ, and the Bible calls him the shepherd in many places, right? 1 Peter 5, 4, he's called the chief shepherd by Peter. And then in John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And so we see here God referring to the Son as his co-equal, the one who stands next to me, that fellow one of the triune God. Thirdly, the great consequence of this awakened sword was to not only take the life of the shepherd, but it was also to scatter the sheep. You saw that. 
Awake and strike the shepherd, and in doing so, the sheep scatter. The, the, the prophet Zechariah uses the term little ones to show how vulnerable these sheep are, how, how weak the scattered ones were. And then fourth, God's gracious preserving of the sheep that we see in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. There are, and I'll get into this in a moment, but there are a couple ways that this verse could be translated. And you see the way the ESV did it. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Um, but I, I believe, and I, I hope to convince you of this before we're done here, that it ought to be translated, turn my hand towards the little ones. Those are the two options. And maybe both are right. Um, if you know anything about the scattering of the sheep and their restoration. And you might be thinking to yourself, how is this related to a theology of the cross in Mark chapter 14 through 16? Where is this tied in? And here it is. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. I want you to notice the, the quote that Jesus makes in these verses. It says in verse 27 of Mark 14, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written. Where is it written? Zechariah 13, seven is where it's written. He said, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That is the connection to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, and connection to our study of the theology of the cross in Mark 14, 15, and 16. So that is the prophetic intent of Zechariah 13, 7. It would include what Jesus told Peter and the others that, that they would forsake him, but after they forsook him, that he would meet them once again in Galilee. Galilee. And what I want you to see here as I unfold it for you in the sermon to come, that God sustained the disciples through this abandonment, through this betrayal, through this trial. So let's, let's identify the players. First, the, the sheep. The identity of the sheep. The sheep spoken of here, of course, were the 11 remaining disciples. Judas had already left, if you remember, to, be, to betray Jesus. And so 11 were left. These are the ones that Zechariah is referring to. These are the ones in Mark 14 to whom Jesus was speaking. The 12 disciples, of course, were all handpicked by Jesus. It says in John chapter 15, verse 16, that I chose you, you didn't choose me. So what Jesus was saying is he handpicked the 12. And yet these 12, starting with Judas, and then the remaining 11, all forsook him, all took off. You wonder about his ability to choose disciples. Once the shepherd was smitten, and that word smitten that the Old Testament author used means arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified. After the shepherd was smitten, the sheep ran for cover, as you can imagine. These were the ones that Jesus had chosen. These were the ones that had left everything to follow him for three years. They remained faithful to Jesus up to this point. And then they ran. 
Secondly, the actions of the sheep, and I would add sinful actions. The sinful actions of the sheep, even though they all promised to stick by his side, turns out they didn't. Matthew 26, 35 explains that. But the sheep were scattered. But here's an important point. Their apostasy, their departure wasn't permanent. It was short-lived. It was temporary moment of sinful weakness. But it was sinful. They forsook the second person of the Godhead, even though it was foreordained by God that they do so. So how is it that it was sinful? How was it that their departure, their betrayal, abandonment of Christ, how is that sinful? Maybe they were just scared and it's okay to be scared, right? Who wouldn't be? But let me explain to you why it was sinful. First of all, because they broke a promise. Do you remember? They promised to follow Jesus till the end. It was, it was something that they promised to do early on in Jesus' ministry. They, they agreed to the terms that Jesus laid out in Luke chapter 14. Listen to the terms. Verses 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. And so they agreed to these terms. Who else are we going to follow, Peter asked later on. But they were unfaithful, right? They ran when things got tough. They promised to follow him all the way to death if necessary, but they broke their word out of fear. Now, listen to Peter's words in Matthew 26, 35. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. So they broke their promise. And when you break a promise, that's sin. Right? So their actions were sinful. You remember in John 6, 67 and 68, Jesus did this. He took the 12 and he said, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him. Listen to this famous reply. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What a wonderful heartfelt response from Peter, the head of the disciples. If you remember 18 months earlier, Jesus had asked the 12 if they wanted to leave and stop following him. In the Greek language, there's an emphasis on the word you. Do you want to stop following? Do you want to turn away also? For example, it could be translated like this. You that I've personally handpicked, do you want to leave also? You that were personally given to me by God the Father, do you want to go away? You that I have sacrificially loved and am going to die for, are you considering departing? Even you? Remember, in John 6, when Jesus began this sermon, some commentators believe there were hundreds of thousands listening to this sermon on the shores of Galilee. And it was a natural amphitheater, so it could be done. In the middle of his sermon, when he was explaining how he needed to be eaten and his blood drank in order to be saved, people were going, hold on, and they started leaving in droves. And by the end of his sermon, there were 12 guys sitting there. And he says, do you want to leave too? So that's the context of where I'm coming from. You, you've read Peter's reply, Jesus, you're the only one who has the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? What a stellar answer. But 
It's an answer that it seems that he went back on. And by the way, Christian friend, that question is going to be asked of you at some point in your Christian life. Don't, don't think it won't. I'm not sure where you're at in your Christian experience, but sooner or later, the question will be asked of you by God is, do you want to leave also? You're going to encounter some serious situations in your experience as a Christian, a death of a child, a ruined marriage, a lost job, some discouragement, some despair, and you will consider the question that Jesus asked his disciples, am I going to leave or am I going to stick it out? We all will face that sooner or later. But they ran, and so it was a sinful decision, a sinful action. It was also sinful because their action was graceless. When they abandoned Christ, it was a graceless act. Their leaving went against the principles of grace that had been given to them by the Holy Spirit. Were the 12 saved? Well, we know 11 were. If they were saved, why did they go against the principles of grace? And, and hence, the point of this sermon. They were saved and in the process of sanctification, they loved God, they believed in Jesus as their uh, Messiah. The presence of the Holy Spirit would have prompted them to honor their commitment to Christ, but their departure re reveals that they resisted the Holy Spirit and submitted to the fears that were facing them. Next, it was sinful action because it was offensive. It was offensive to their Lord and their teacher. If there is anyone who ever deserved faithful followers, wouldn't it be Christ? And here they are, Christ followers, most faithful followers, leaving him. Their failure resulted in the Lord's arrest, ridicule, torture, and ultimately his crucifixion. Now, obviously, we can say that their sin was ordained by God and his plans included their apostasy, as per Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah prophesied that this would happen, so we know that their sinful departure was ordained by God. But nevertheless, their departure was, in fact, sin, wasn't it? Next, their departure or desertion was sin because they disregarded Jesus' warning. Had they been warned about this? Oh, yeah. You remember when Judas left from the upper room? What did Jesus say? in verse 11 of John 18, after he departed, it would have been better if that guy had never been born. Would that scare you? Oh, boy, howdy. And then he calls them the son of destruction. They had been warned about departing from Christ. And they had this stark example of how terrible apostasy was viewed by the God of heaven. And yet, what'd they do? They departed. Next, it was sinful action because they abandoned each other. They not only abandoned Christ, but they abandoned each other. In John 16, 32, it says that they all fled to their own homes. They didn't stick together, which they should have done. They didn't pray out together to, for God's support. No, they ran for the hills, each and every one. And then finally, because they lost faith. I think this is the most serious of sins in terms of their desertion of Christ. Listen to what Matthew 26, 31 says. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will f uh, of the flock will be scattered. 
Now, the words fall away in English are the ones I want you to pay attention to here in Matthew 26, 31. You will all fall away. That word, fall away, is one word in the Greek, and it's where we get our word scandalize. You will all be scandalized by me, is what Jesus said. And what he was referring to was that his arrest, torture, and crucifixion scandalized the disciples to the point of deeply questioning their belief on whether or not he was the Messiah. Put yourself in their shoes. You believe that this is the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, and then you see him arrested, tortured, and killed. What would that do to your beliefs about his Messiahship? The same thing it did to theirs. It scandalized their faith. They began to actually wonder, maybe this isn't the guy. Maybe we've actually wasted the last three years of our lives. And so they lost faith. They ran. They were scandalized. Now, let's move on to our next point, the motives of the sheep. What prompted them to do what they did, to run, when things got a little dicey? Why did they run? The motives. First of all, the first motive was that God suspended his divine support. That thing that prompted them to run was that God removed his divine support, his divine assistance to them. They had made it clear that they wanted to remain faithful to Jesus. Everything was in place. They were faithful followers up to this point. They knew Jesus. They were learning doctrine. But when it got hot, they, they ran out the door. And so an important point here that we need to understand is that they would have never abandoned Christ Jesus had God's sustaining power sustained them or remained with them. They would have remained faithful. But God withdrew his support, withdrew his divine strength, and they ran. And he did this because he had higher intentions for the work of Christ than preserving the faith of 11 guys. Do you know that Jesus is our Savior as much as he was their Savior? The, 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 the man that those 11 followed is our Savior as much as theirs. And so in order for him to be our savior, he had to remove the support, the, the, the spiritual strength of, and resolve of those 11 so that Jesus could fulfill prophecy and die for the sins of his people in such a way that satisfied the wrath of God, which couldn't have been done with all the support they would have, they would have supplied. He is our savior as much as theirs. He withdrew his sustaining power which left them to themselves, and they ran as their natural weakness could only do. You see, God's plan of redemption was that Jesus was to die alone, to die abandoned, and he had to experience the depth of suffering that he did. God, for a time, withheld his spiritual strength and encouragement to the disciples so that Jesus could accomplish everything he came to earth to accomplish. In his exhortation in fight against sin, the Apostle Paul said this in Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Whose might? His, God's, not your own, not your own resolve, not your own experience, no. Be strong in his might. So if God withholds the strength of his might, 
we will fall just as the 11 fell. This is critical to understand as a growing Christian. So by God's choice of withholding his usual spiritual assistance, they were weaker than ordinary and the temptation was stronger than usual. Next, they remained sinners. What was the second motive? The first was that God removed his sustaining grace, his, his spiritual strength to fight that temptation. And then secondly, they remained sinners. There's the reason they fell. This was the second reason they abandoned Jesus. They still had this residue of sin. Even though they had been saved by the Holy Spirit, had been brought into the family of God, they remained sinners. And so, listen to me, Sun Valley Church. Even after we are saved, we also possess the remnants of sin. We also possess this, this um, bent towards rebellion. Even if we're saved, even though all things are new, even when all things have been passed away, being a Christian doesn't eliminate sin. Have you figured that out yet? If you haven't, your spouse has, right? We all still battle it, which is what most of Ephesians 6 is about. Once Jesus saves us, we are saved from the penalty of sin for sure, that we are no longer going to have to worry about standing in judgment for our sin. We're not going to be standing guilty before God, are we? Why? Because Jesus Christ took the penalty of your sin and mine to Calvary's cross. That's done. It is finished, right? Praise God. And progressively, we experience the power of sin decreasing. The longer you live and faithfully walk with Christ, the stronger you are to do battle with the enemy, to fight the temptation that's put in front of you. But it's not until we get into the presence of Jesus Christ face to face that the presence of sin will disappear and there will be no temptation. There will be no sin. Aren't you looking forward to that day? Amen. So the truth is, what, we, what many great authors and preachers over the last many centuries have preached and written about, John Owen, for example, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must do battle with sin because we have this remnant of sin remaining or residues still within us. Now, this next point is uh, Roman numeral number four in your outline, and it is the, the focus of this sermon. And I, I want you to get this more than anything I've said this morning. I want you to understand this and embrace it and have it encourage your heart. Listen, God retrieves his own. If you're his, no matter what your sin he will retrieve you. He will bring you back. He will strengthen you. He will embrace you. Just like Peter. Peter repented of his sin. All the other 11 repented of their sin and returned to Christ. Even though they abandoned him, he never abandoned them. 10 of the 11, or the remaining 11, 10 of the 11 um, disciples died a martyr's death. So even though they, they left in shame and, and ran and abandoned and deserted Christ, after the resurrection, 
they grew strong and powerful in word and action and lived for Christ, ministered to the world for Christ, and died a martyr's death because of it. So he never abandoned them. He loved them through their sinful failure. Listen to what Jesus said to Mary in Mark 16, 7, right after the resurrection. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. These are sweet words, friends, and I want you to understand them. I'll see you in Galilee. Although the disciples had turned their backs on Christ and ran when things got hot in the hour of his greatest needs, he still went after them. He drew them back. He welcomed them with open and loving arms. As Zechariah 13, 7 says, the last phrase, and turn my hand, here's the difference, towards the little ones. Not against, towards the little ones. You see, the English Standard Version, which we use in our church, translates that critical Hebrew word in one of two possible ways. Their translation goes like this, I will turn my hand against the little ones, and I don't think this is the best choice because of how the story actually turns out. I'll meet you in Galilee, he says. So he didn't turn his hand against the little ones, he turned his hand towards the little ones, he supported them, protected them, reached out to them, embraced them. He invited them to meet him in Galilee. Even after he knew they would turn against him and flee. I'll meet you where it all began. See you at the lakes. Here are the application points that I want you to hear. First of all, and I'm sure that these thoughts have been coming into your head all along, but listen to these particular applications. Self-confidence is a spiritual danger. Do you know that yet, Christian friend? Pride goes before what? A fall. Self-confidence is a spiritual danger. Peter and the rest all proudly proclaim their allegiance to Christ. We will never leave you. And Peter, if all of these guys leave you, I won't. Who was the first to betray him? Peter, right? None of them had any doubt as to their resolve to stick it out. None of them questioned their commitment and love for Christ. They all said, we'll be here till the end. They couldn't see that their spiritual strength was dependent on God's sustaining grace, not on their willpower. None of us has any reason to depend on our own spiritual maturity to get us through hard times. None of us has any reason to depend on our history of faithfulness to combat Satan's devices. Do you remember what Peter called Satan in 1 Peter 5, 8? I'll read it for you. Be sober-minded. In other words, pay attention, be alert, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter's talking to Christians. Don't believe that you're stronger than Satan in the fight against sin. Temptation in Satan's hand is more powerful than anything that you possess without Christ. Every created being is completely dependent on God. Even trees, rocks, birds, especially us, his people, the pinnacle of his 
uh, creation. We are more dependent on him than any other of his creation. No matter who you are, no one can sustain themselves through temptation without Christ-sustaining grace. Self-confidence is a spiritual danger. The slightest breeze of temptation seems to topple the greatest of Christian who isn't being supported by divine aid. Friends, be wary of self-confidence. John Flavel said this, the constant supplies of the spirit of Jesus Christ are the food and fuel of all our graces, including faithfulness. The best men will show themselves but men if God leaves them. <laughs> the danger of self-confidence. If God is the one who grants us spiritual life, he must be the one who sustains our spiritual life. It's far better to be a humble Christian with limited gifts and limited influence than a proud Christian with multiple gifts and vast influence. Adam is a great example. He had everything going for him, didn't he? He had a perfect environment, no sinful tendencies, every advantage. He actually spoke with God face to face, and he couldn't remain faithful. He was dependent and didn't even know it. So, do you think that you can do battle with the enemy on your own? Are you struggling with self-confidence in the midst of spiritual warfare? Please hear me, Christian. The Bible records character after character who were spiritual giants that fell into temptation so that you and I will know we need to remain dependent on God. David, for example, was called a man after God's own heart before he fell with Bathsheba. He was called a man after God's own heart and yet he fell. My question is, are you closer to God than David, the author of the Psalms? Abraham was called a friend of God, but he fell. And he fell after he was called a friend of God. <laughs> are you closer friends with God than Abraham? Peter. What did Jesus nickname Peter? The rock, the rock. This guy was everything that a rock brings to your mind. Stable, sturdy, committed. How'd that go? He fell. Question, are you more spiritually stable, more solid than Peter, the rock? First Corinthians 10, 12, the apostle Paul warns the church. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Friends, recognize your dependence. Christian friend, realize that you are weak in yourself. Be with those that God supplies you with, the people of God. Be with what he supplies you with, the word of God. Be just... Filled with the Spirit of God. 
depend on these gifts that he's given you to avoid sin. That is inevitable if you remain self-confident. Secondly, the fear of man is powerful. The fear of man is powerful. We've all experienced this. This is peer pressure, in a sense, the fear of man. Listen to what the author of Proverbs says about it, 29:25. The fear of man lays a snare. Don't you know it? The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Not the one who trusts in himself, the one who trusts in the Lord. Because the sheep scattered, we can learn some important things here from their weakness, from their failure. Peter's interaction with the servant girl and the idea there, the servant girl in the courtyard that was questioning Peter was a young girl, very young. And so Peter's interaction with this young servant girl demonstrated how powerful the fear of man or a little girl can be. And I know some little girls that are pretty frightening, but this may have been one of them. But Peter, the rock, falls to a little girl. <laughs> the fear of the opinions of others has been the downfall of how many Christians throughout Christian history? Why is this? Because we naturally want to please each other. We want to impress each other. We, we want to put the best foot forward. We, we, we many times desire approval of others more than the approval of God. And so we do things that we wouldn't normally do or say things to get attention or be praised. When the emperor of Vespasian had commanded Fluidius Priscus not to come to the Senate, or if he did, he'll put him to death, this is what Fluidius, the senator, said. It was a brave, noble answer. The senator answered the emperor, as a senator, it is fit I should be at the Senate. And if being there am required to give my advice, I will speak freely that which my conscience commands me. Then the emperor then threatened that he would die if he did so, and Fluidius responded, did I ever tell you that I was immortal? Do you do what you will and I will do what I ought. It is in your power to put me to death unjustly, and it's in me to die constantly. Wow. That is an, a, a lesson for us in the fear of men. Who do you fear more? Man? Your neighbor? A little girl? Or God? The lesson for us in the abandonment of the disciples is to consider what we fear most. God or man. We must work to trust God completely in spite of what others may say or think, especially when we're afraid. Can't we learn that from this story? Third application, a believer's strength is determined by God's sustaining grace. You already knew that, right? This is what came to your mind here a few minutes ago. Unless I'm dependent on God's sustaining grace, I will fall. It's hard to understand the difference between Peter in the courtyard when he failed at the challenge of a little girl and Peter after the resurrection when he was bold as a lion and marched into the Sanhedrin and preached at him. 
Same guy. Completely different people. In the courtyard, Peter was frail, fearful, weak. But after the resurrection, he was immovable, lion-like, courageous. What was the difference? Here it is, sustaining grace. That was the difference. We see this in small dogs. I have a sister-in-law who loves small dogs. I love my sister-in-law, but not her dogs. Um, they're about this big, about as big as a potato. And man, they're fierce when she's there. And if she walks out of the room and you look at them, they about go into convulsions. But when she shows up, man, they're, they got, they're all up and, you know, rippling muscles in those little things, you know. Just like us, when we're with our Savior, man, we're on fire. We can do whatever for Jesus. And then he withdraws his sustaining grace and we lose our backbone and our knees begin to quiver, right? <laughs> We've all been there, haven't we? Fourth, the spiritual failure is not the final state of true believers. And oh, how good news is this. Spiritual failure is not the final state of true believers. Just because we experience the grace of God and have our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, it doesn't mean that we won't fail. We will fail. I guarantee it. You will fail between now and glory. You will. But that won't be the last word in your life. If we're truly saved by God, we will be restored to a growing, loving, and vibrant relationship with our Savior. In spite of whatever sins drew us away, we will be restored. We'll see him in Galilee, in other words. Listen to Micah 7:8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fail or fall. I shall rise when I sit in darkness. The Lord will be a light to me. My failure, my darkness, isn't the last word of my life. Praise God. The doctrine of election is particularly important and encouraging here. God chose us when? After he discovered how awesome we are? It says in Ephesians 1.4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before you existed, it could demonstrate your awesomeness, he chose you. <laughs> and he chose you, according to Romans 8, 28 through 30, to be in him, conformed to his image forever. He chose you before time began. He plans for you to be with him in his presence forever after time ends. So, conclude with me, no slip, trip, or fall can affect the plan of God for you. You're going to take off, you're going to fail, you're going to lose it, you're going to be a, a shame to Christ between now and when you see him face to face, but that's not the last word. Friends, what a blessed 
piece of information this is. I'll see you in Galilee. John 10, 29, Jesus speaking, my father who has given them to me, given who? Us, believers. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Anybody here thankful for that? Yeah, I am. Romans 8, 38, 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, including your failure. 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. So God has a foundation under all things, and it bears this seal. It's, it's the placard on the front of the foundation. The Lord knows those who are his. That's unique to God. We fail each other and we get cut out of the will, right? Or cut out of the friendship or not included to the next baby shower. Oh, you know, not God. No, no matter what you do, Christian friend, no matter how egregiously you sin against him, he'll see you in Galilee. Fifth, worship God for the work of the shepherd. Wasn't your heart already there, already? Weren't you in your heart and mind worshiping God already for his goodness here? Yes, of course. How can you hear this and not? <laughs> Zechariah 13, 7 is the triumph of divine justice. Awake, O sword, and smite the shepherd. Why? So we can have our sins forgiven. So he takes our punishment so we can live forever with him in spite of our failures between now and then. Oh, Jesus took God's sword of justice for you, for me. Remember the prodigal son? when he returned to his father after he had been through some pretty sinful, deep and depressing things, not sure that God would, his father in this case, would take him back. And he came home, was heading up the driveway. You remember what the father did? About time you got back. You learn your lesson, boy? Is that what he said? No, no. In fact, he said nothing. He ran, as said, and fell on his neck, fell on his son's neck, hugged him around the neck, and kissed him. That's what happened. The prodigal son abandoned the father, just like the twelve, just like you and me. And this was his reception when he came back. I'll see you in Galilee. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, Abba Father, 
we do not deserve an ounce of this loving, good, kind patience that we receive from you daily. And yet, here we are, under your grace, in your goodness, under your favor, once again restored. Help us to learn. Help us not to run so quickly, but also to remember once we've run that we have a faithful Savior reaching out once again and reminding us that he loves us and he'll see us in Galilee. What a blessing. We exalt and praise you. Father, we are yours. Amen.